0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Technology Report, sponsored by GM Defense, I'm your host Vago Meradian. Joining us today for our last technology report of the year is Paul Beaker, the chief engineer and director of advanced product development at GM Defense, our sponsor. Uh, Paul has been with uh, General Motors for 20 years and worked on all aspects of vehicle design, including uh, the most challenging element of it, the chassis architecture uh, for vehicles ranging from the Chevy Equinox to the GM Terrain series uh, to the groundbreaking Cadillac CTS. Uh, He joined the defense side uh, of the company just a few months ago. Paul, thanks very, very much for joining us, and it's always an honor and pleasure talking to another car guy.
1: Well, Vago, it's great to be here, and I'm, I'm excited to talk to you and uh, share a little bit about uh, GM Defense.
0: Uh, Indeed, in and I think you do have one of the coolest uh, jobs in the world, which is uh, chief engineer. Uh, and uh, But before we get started, I just want to point out that Bell sponsors our daily podcast Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, uh, our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage are sponsored by Uh, Northrop Grumman, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, sponsors our coverage of strategy and L3 Harris, sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. And of course, GM Defense, uh, aside from sponsoring this series, sponsors our overall uh, technology coverage. Uh, Paul, in uh, 2020, uh, GM Defense won the $214 million contract to build the infantry squad vehicle. That's based on the company's Chevy Colorado uh, Colorado ZR2 platform production began. Uh, earlier this year at your facility in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, where we visited. It was one of the first trips I took, and it was really uh, enjoyable uh, to to get to a plant. But what was stunning about it is that 649 of these vehicles that will be delivered through 2025 are coming out of a factory where about 20 people work, four of which or so are on the production floor, which is sort of a testament to production engineering and design in order to be able to Uh, to put this vehicle together, put it together quickly at the rate of what, about 12 to 16 uh, a month. Talk to us, what, what I'm particularly interested in starting is, talk to us about the commercial engineering approach, right? That a company like General Motors brings to this equation. You guys make almost 7 million cars a year, right? So all of the elements of this really do have to come together at a commercial grade of precision. And with production engineering, because you don't have the ability to do touch labor on a lot of things. Talk to us about how this commercial approach could actually prove to be very game-changing in the defense side of the business at a time when people are looking for speed and lower cost.
1: Sure, absolutely. I I see that our ability in GM defense to link back and leverage the commercial technologies from, from General Motors is a huge competitive advantage that we have. And there's also a culture difference in being linked to General Motors as well. And that, that culture difference starts up front with design for manufacture. We, uh, we work in an industry that has razor thin margins, and we need to eke out every efficiency we can get to be able to compete in the commercial side. And that culture carries over in the defense side. So as we look at, at the infantry squad vehicle, that DNA of designing for manufacture is built in upfront in our designs. As we, as we start a design and put the very first uh, lines and, and planes into our CAD, we are working with manufacturing engineering to understand how we're gonna build the vehicle and we adapt our designs to help with that assembly. And we uh, bake that efficiency in upfront so that later on, when it comes time to, to physically build the vehicles, we can do that quickly and with high quality. And in turn, we can pass that value that we've put in there upfront onto our customer.
0: You know, digital design has become sort of a buzzword on the defense side uh, of the universe, although, you know, digital design has been there for a long time and certainly the uh, automotive industry and, and certainly aerospace has been using that as well. What are the technologies that are changing this game from the standpoint of engineering, right? Whether it's on the design side. Uh, on manufacturing. We're now able to uh, print things uh, and do additive in a way that we never were able to do uh, before. Uh, And indeed, we're coming perilously close to being able to print structural components, right? Body shells and chassis and things like that. I mean, right now, putting fiber in those is is difficult, but we're not very far away from doing it. Talk to us about how digital design and modern manufacturing techniques are actually going to prove to be completely game-changing uh, for this industry, say, in the next five years? Sure.
1: Well, I'll start with the digital d- design. And you're right, it's been around for quite a while. It's, it's been around uh, since I started in the industry. But it, it continues to progress every year. Um, it certainly starts with the design. Now it's moving to the analysis. It's also um, moving to the validation of the parts. General Motors is moving to eliminate more and more physical tests and do more and more virtually or with digital design. We're also able to calibrate, develop, tune the vehicle digitally as well. We we can combine hardware um, with software and not have to build a a full vehicle, but rather be able to do the uh, simulations in, in a lab and have less dependence on hardware. That means we can go faster and faster as we have to build less hardware and lo- run less physical tests. And we're applying the, the same thinking in the defense space. We are now characterizing uh, roads a- in Yuma, uh, test tracks in Yuma and Aberdeen and so on. And we'll bring that data uh, into our system so that we'll be able to predict loads and be able to analyze loads and validate components for the army without actually having to build a vehicle.
0: How does that play into the customer feedback loop, right? I mean, when General Motors gets a a commercial product wrong, it, it, it doesn't sell well, right? Or you guys find even after you've made a couple of hundred thousand vehicles, hey, you know, this is failing. The whole key is how do you quickly put this on, you know, get that customer feedback, do the engineering, and get it on a production line quickly. What What have you learned on the commercial side of things that you're already seeing and applying to in, in the case of this uh, vehicle, right? Given that you're very early in the program and it's just now, you know, it's, it went IOC, uh, initial operating capability this year. What, you know, how 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 do you work those loops uh, so that it's not a multi-year process of, of getting changes on the production line, but actually weeks?
1: I'll go back to what I said earlier about what's in our DNA and our culture. And it, it is listening to customer feedback and reacting quickly. Uh, we, we simply must do that on the commercial side. We don't have a contract with our customer that says they're going to buy X number per year. If, if we're not listening and giving the customer what they want, they'll go someplace else. So it's, it's built into what we do. And I, I saw that with the ISV um, in the soldier feedback that we got during the soldier touch points. And uh, the, the comments that they made to us about, well, the vehicle could be better uh, if this were done or, or if this were done. And we took that feedback and we made design changes and uh, brought it to the next soldier touch point. And uh, the ISV was the number one rated vehicle. So it's just in our culture to be able to do that, not only to listen to the feedback, but to react quickly. Um, in the commercial side, the competition changes every year, and uh, we simply must keep up and, and react quickly. And if, if we don't, we'll, we'll lose the customer. And we just bring that mentality into what we're doing in the defense space as well.
0: Um, I, w- I would like to point out for our audience that folks who know me know I'm a fan of lean manufacturing, the Kaizen uh, approach to doing things, and and a, a friend of mine who's a uh, you know Shingo award winning lean manufacturing guy always loves to point out that actually this technique was not a Toyota technique was actually a General Motors technique uh, that was then advanced uh, in in uh, Japan uh, at at the at the end of the day right and that's kind of Paul what you're talking about right I mean this sort of sense of continuous improvement uh, that you have to do on the product otherwise you're you're going to end up on the losing side of things how. So let me ask you a cost question, right? As you said, right, the automotive industry is a razor thin margin. So even though you're making lots of vehicles, uh, all it takes is a couple of recalls and, uh, you know, a couple of other brakes not going your, your way and and you end up in a in a problematic situation. You know, I remember somebody from the car industry uh, telling me once that, you know, it, a better dashboard material would have cost, you know, let's say five bucks uh, and headquarters vetoed it. And all of a sudden they weren't selling. Uh, the product because people were going, ah, it kind of I don't I don't like the dashboard, right? How how do you guys make these cost trade-offs? What's the process you guys use to make sure that you're making the right kinds of, of trade-offs, right? That you're you're not you're not under investing where you should be investing and not over-investing where you shouldn't. What's the process you guys use to get to that Goldilocks zone where you're delivering everything you need to deliver and, 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 and in the process, right. Convincing your customer, Hey, you know, I want to go back and, and pull the GM lever again.
1: Yeah. On the, on the commercial side, those are, those are very complex, uh, uh, decisions, right. Because we could, we could spend a, a dollar more on the dashboard or do we spend a, a dollar more on the chassis or do we spend a dollar more on the seat and, and if, if you spend a dollar more on all of those things, suddenly you've made your vehicle um, too expensive and, um, and, and you, you won't be able to, to sell it. Um, so those are very complex uh, decisions. And um, we, we do a lot with the feedback, um, just like we're doing on the defense side with the soldier touch points. Obviously we don't have that on the commercial side. We have, we have clinics. And, uh, and, and really try to get the voice of the customer, lessons learned from the, from the past as well. On the defense side, there's a little less of that because um, material on the dashboard isn't quite as important uh, in, the, in the ISV as it, as it is in a, in a Cadillac. So um, there we're really um, looking to provide the best value we can while meeting the requirements uh, given to us uh, by the customer. So there, there's, not, uh, there's not as much of, of that with, with trading off um, uh, one versus the other. It's, it's much more about meeting requirements and then engaging with the customer during immersion events or soldier touch points, and making sure we're getting the feedback for for what they think could be better, um, better serve their needs, and and then reacting quickly.
0: Um, the uh, I, I would love to ask you about ten more questions uh, about about that, right? Because I, I'm still fascinated. Uh, you know, as you said, right? Um, a dollar uh, in engine, a dollar in chassis, right? I mean, eventually. you the cost of the of the program does come up. But you know, what is it the defense side can learn from the discipline inside the company, that everything is a cost item, right? And you need to think of it not just as immediate production cost, but then perhaps long term cost for the company, right? I mean, obviously, if, uh, if, if the product is endurable, that has a cost to it, right? If 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 you have to have a warranty repair item, there is a cost to it what 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 is the cost mindset you bring to this that holds you in good stead when you're listening to the customer and you're thinking through okay here are the things we need to do and oh by the way you know we're trying to do these product improvements as well i'm sort of fascinated about the philosophy of that and and how you guys manage to do it at scale
1: i know i sound like i'm repeating myself but it 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 really comes from the com- the culture that is so prevalent from the commercial side that's brought into the defense side, where we we do look at all aspects of cost. Um, If if a part isn't durable, isn't manufactured correctly, and it fails on the commercial side, uh, General Motors pays for that in warranty. So we need to make sure that that doesn't happen. We need to make sure that every vehicle that comes out of the assembly plant Uh, at one per minute, by the way, um, has the highest levels of quality because we simply can't afford to pay to fix it. Um, and and the, the thinking of, as I mentioned earlier, design for manufacturing. So we can manufacture these efficiently at one per minute. That, that, that permeates the culture that we have in uh, GM Defense. We're, we're not just simply thinking about the design and meeting requirements when we're in the design phase. We're also thinking about sustainment and manufacturing and durability all at once designing that in all at once because it's it's simply in our culture
0: um let me uh, ask you about uh growth and and modularity right i mean one of the big challenges and and one of the complexities of your job was uh to be able to design platforms that could support various different types of vehicles right um and, and modularity is something that the Army is looking for in its next generation of vehicles. Uh, reduce uh, the uh, maintenance burdens, right? I mean, we have, we have a, had a tendency of looking at individual vehicles with large numbers of individual part counts. That matters a little bit less when, uh, you're, in a, uh, uh, when you're in a permissive environment and you can get the parts to uh, the soldiers in the field. It's a much bigger challenge, for example, if you're in um, uh, in a great power competition where resupply is a problem. And, and then all of a sudden the burden of having too many different types of parts is is problematic, right? So having a modular approach to propulsion and other parts of, uh, the, the entire vehicle equation will be important. Talk to us about the modularity approach you guys are trying to bring to a next generation of army vehicles building on your experience here, uh, with ISV.
1: Well, I'll answer that question in, in two ways. First, the, the, I'll talk about the sustainability. And as I mentioned with you know, all the things we try to design in upfront, serviceability is part of that as well. Again, if General Motors needs to make a repair under warranty, uh, we try to avoid that, obviously, at all costs, but if we must do it, we want to be able to do it quickly and efficiently. So we're also designing in for serviceability, and that carries over into our defense products. It's already designed into the Chevy Colorado, which was the base, basis platform for the ISV. So that's, that's already built in. As we talk about modularity, again, the second part of my answer, as we talk about modularity, we look at that as a a modular design that supports a family of vehicles um, that can support different missions. So when we start a new program, we don't think about simply the request for proposal that's on the table, we think about how else might this vehicle be used and we create a platform that's flexible and modular that can adapt to many use cases and many configurations. And again, that comes from the commercial side. We uh, look at our full-size truck platform and we, we think about many users um, you know, from, from the casual user to somebody who uses, uses this commercially, for their business, to transporting families around. And we, we build a family of vehicles, Uh, off of a a base platform that can support all of those. And and that uh, would include our Silverado 1500, 2500, 3500, as well as our our, our Chevy Tahoe and Suburban. They share design uh, philosophies, they share components, they share manufacturing strategies, um, but support a variety of needs and a variety of customers. And we take that same approach Uh, into the infantry squad vehicle. And we showed some of the different concepts and variants that can be um, brought off of the ISV at AUSA. We showed a heavy gun carrier and an electric um, ISV concept as well.
0: Um, What are the vehicular technologies that you think are the most exciting that will, right, because we're kind of coming full circle in some respects, right? I mean, defense used to lead engineering uh, and technology development. Well, let me put it this way. Defense, historically, before World War II, would just draw off of commercial industry, right? And then after the World War II investment, it became that the DoD became a technology driver. And then we went to a more natural order of the universe, right, where commercial technology is, you know, the whole key is adapting um, commercial designs to address military needs, right? And and uh, that's happening in the unmanned space with enormous uh, rapidity. What what do you think are the most exciting commercial vehicular technologies that you think are going to be the biggest game changers in military transportation as you look, say, five, 10, 15 years ahead?
1: Well, I'll I'll comment on the on the areas that that GM defense is in, involved in. Um, that are the most exciting to me. Uh, electric vehicles would be part of it, and I I, I know that uh, we certainly have some, some work to do in electric vehicles for the military, but there there are benefits there with silent uh, mobility, right? And, and be able to uh, to get the the warfighter um, where he or she needs to go silently right? Running under silent power. There's also the heat signature that's uh, when when you don't have a hot exhaust system off of a a diesel engine. Um, With the the batteries on board the electric vehicle, there's also the ability to be in silent watch mode and not have to start up the diesel engine, diesel generator to generate electric power to complete the silent watch. So um, there there are certainly some advantages um, with electric vehicles, and uh, I, I think we're just beginning to explore that in the military space. Um, another would be uh, autonomous um, autonomous driving, right, and uh, and robotics. General Motors has has made um, huge investments into autonomy and for electric vehicles and uh, autonomous vehicles together over thirty five billion dollars. So we can leverage that in GM defense and uh, that that can uh, take some mundane tasks out of the warfighters hands with with uh, automated driving. It can increase uh, safety. It can also with robotics take uh, take humans uh, out of dangerous uh, areas and and let let vehicles handle it so that's that's certainly exciting as well and i would say also some of the other safety technologies um, like 360-degree cameras so we can see around the vehicle um, and, 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 and keep others safe that are around the vehicle. It also helps with situational awareness during uh, silent watch to be able to see what's around the, the vehicle. Lane keep assist, automatic emergency braking, uh, many technologies um, to, to, to keep uh, our warfighters safe, but also um, to prevent damage from the vehicles and taking them, uh, you know, out of service and, and having money spent to repair them. So I, I would say um, those safety features are also pretty exciting.
0: Um, let me ask you a little bit about a, a, electrification, right? Um, one of the last trips I made before the pandemic was uh, to the technical center up in Warren. Uh, no accident that it's right next to the old uh, Tank Automotive Command headquarters as well, In, uh, in uh, right up there. Um one of the things that I saw, you know, I had an opportunity to spend time with with your uh, engineers, and that was the day after the Ultium technology was uh, unveiled and various platforms that you guys uh, were delivering in, in terms of this modular battery uh, motor combinations. Um, what what is the art? Right. I mean, as the chief engineer for GM defense. There is a, right, I mean, you guys have an electric ISV, and soldiers absolutely love it. They love the performance of the vehicle. Uh, they love how quiet it is. You mentioned, right, you can, you can use the battery to power your electronics. The concern is that in field applications, right, fuel has advantages to it for the time being, right? So even if we can electrify cities, and then actually our uh, commercial lives may be electrified, there may be some challenges in doing this on the defense side of the of the universe. Talk to us about the approach you guys are building, bringing, because you guys bring an architectural approach to power, right? That may be different from how others might be looking at this, right? You guys look tend to look at the ecosystem that exists out there, right? How much of this will be internal combustion? How much of this with, will, will be electric? As you look at that military space, what's the kind of the roadmap to get this electrified And what are potentially the limits to that electrification as you, as you look forward to it?
1: That's a great question. Um, a a few, a few things I'd like to point out there, there is definitely a modular approach to the way we build, uh, battery packs. Um, and we think that gives us great flexibility on the commercial side, uh, to be able to adapt, uh, to large heavy vehicles, smaller vehicles. We can also adapt and, uh, and partner as well and be able to provide uh, batteries to partners in the industry. And um, it's a very flexible approach and, and really ties into some of the other things we had talked about earlier, about flexibility and um, designing upfront so that we can react uh, quicker in the end. Um, so, so that's a, a pretty exciting and, uh, and, and I think a great approach. And then and General Motors has made huge investments. You talked about the battery lab, but in, in battery manufacturing, and that, that is so critical that we're bringing that uh, capability in-house, um, which is so key to our business. And it's been exciting for me to watch the progress in the batteries and their power density and the recharge times um, that we're seeing and to be able to to sort of extrapolate where this is gonna go. And you bring up a good point about electric vehicles and and how do we recharge them in austere environments. And and we are are tackling that as well because that's a very real question. The energy density in batteries is not equivalent to uh, diesel fuel and what we can get into a tank, but it is getting there and it is getting there very rapidly. And the concern about range, Um, is going away. That's not really the question anymore. I, I, I I can't get an equivalent range in my electric vehicle. That's gone away because of the advances in battery technology. Now, the next question is, how do I recharge it at the same rate that I can refill my diesel fuel in the tank? And, and that technology is advancing and we are also working on concepts to be able to recharge vehicles in the, in the field and working with our, our Army customers uh, for different concepts with how to do that. And it's, it's the same type of thinking. Today, we need to bring energy into the field. Uh, in order to re, uh, re-energize vehicles but we do that in the form of, of diesel and in in certain forms to get that fuel there or that energy there in the future it's going to look different but it's the same idea we need to bring energy into the field and the way we do that will look different but it's the same idea and as the technology progresses uh, we will be able to recharge an electric vehicle and get the same range out of it that today uh, we can refuel the vehicle for the same range.
0: And and, and what? Uh, so two uh, two part question. And I have uh, one one last question I'd like to ask you as well. Right. So how? Right. You said the technology is moving very quickly. What What's the window? right? Because you're absolutely right. Go back even two years, three years ago, Paul, and folks had range anxiety. Now a new generation of vehicles is giving you as much range as you would be able to get out of a reasonable gas tank, right? Um, and recharge times are m- much lower than, than what they were even a few years ago, right? I mean, and your new generation of battery technology uh, offers a, a lot of flexibility and, and modularity to that as well how large of a window is this, right? I mean, are we gonna be at a quantum difference say in five years? And then the other question is, how are you thinking about bringing energy to the battlefield, right? Because again, that's a big architectural issue um, that then in turn drives your vehicle, right? I mean, that, that's, that's a change to the ecosystem. So how does the ecosystem has to change, have to change? And what's sort of that window? and 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 are are these vehicles going to look completely different in in 5 years right in in terms of capability what what's what's the time window uh
1: i, I don't want to get into too many details uh on that but i i think you can look back at the progression that's been made to your point over the last few years and I think it's safe to assume that we're going to see the same type of progression into the into the future and at some point it won't be about well let's increase the range to a thousand miles or fifteen hundred miles then it will be about shrinking the batteries having less mass um, in the vehicle and and that will that will become the approach. Um, But I I think, I think it's safe to say that we can extrapolate the progress we've seen over the last several years into the future. Um, As far as um, getting energy out into the field, there's, there's many ways to do that. And we're exploring that. And that could be, uh, imagine um, a a, a pallet, a, a palletized system of ultium batteries, that has have the ability uh, to charge several vehicles. We we fly that that pallet in, drop it off, charge vehicles. When it's depleted, we bring a new one in and exchange. Bring the first one back, recharge it. Another could be very powerful um, diesel generators that have the ability to. Um, to charge several vehicles at once, and then it's a similar situation. Once once that's there, it's about getting more uh, diesel fuel to it. Um, I would say hydrogen's not off the table. GM's been been uh, very active in hydrogen fuel cells and the ability to generate electricity that way. And as you mentioned about recharge times, again we can. I think it's safe to say we can uh, c- continue to see progress in recharge time. And, uh, you know, we're getting down into the into the matter of 10, 15, 20 minutes to be able to put another 100-mile uh, charge into a vehicle, which has been sig- a huge progress over the past few years. And we're going to see that continue to happen in the future. And, and I don't think it'll be too long before you'll be able to fully recharge your electric vehicle for 300, 400, 500 miles of range in the same time that it would take to put fuel in a tank and get the same range.
0: Um, And I I think people have a tendency of forgetting that each mile you're driving a heavy vehicle on a road, you could run its radios and other internal systems for like a day, uh, right? I mean, I think folks sometimes forget exactly how much power goes to the, the motive force of it, as opposed to the to running the electronics part of it. Um, you know, and obviously there are also concerns, right, about temperature degradation, which I know you guys are working uh, as well through um, a, a variety of uh, technologies. Let me ask you one last question, and which is the retrofit market, right? We have enormous numbers of vehicles, and in fact, fastest growing segment or, or a very fast growing segment of the automotive uh, business is electrification, uh, right? Replacing the internal combustion engine in your car uh, with uh, an electric power plant. The, the challenge is everybody wants kind of like a 500 horsepower motor in a, like a Citroën de chevaux, which is completely idiotic. Whereas actually um, the, the more interesting part of the market is how you can actually make a one-for-one replacement for that power plant, right? And you know, you may have a bug, uh, and you you want a 26 horsepower and with the same power characteristics with which with which mo- with modern electronics, that's actually achievable. Right. That's particularly important, not just for your hobbyist, but actually retrofitting vast fleets of perfectly good army vehicles and actually electrifying them. Right. And getting all the benefits that come from that, from lower maintenance footprint and uh, more operational flexibility and what have you. How well how are you guys thinking about that element of the market, which could actually be as sizable, or if not even bigger, than new vehicle delivery?
1: That that's that's absolutely uh, um, where things are headed. With any new technology, there's the early adopters. And those early adopters bring certain personalities with them and, and desire certain things. And, and I think that's what we're seeing in much of the EV space. But, but as, as time goes on, in just the, 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 the next few years, we're going to see the, the EVs dropping down into all market segments. And I think the, the Chevy Bolt was a, was a good example of a first step in that direction. But we're going to see more and more, and we're going to see EVs for uh every family, every need, every person, um, as, as we go forward. So I think there'll be, there'll be less of, of the, uh, pure focus on performance, but there, there is, there is the instant torque that comes with an electric vehicle that will always be there, um, uh, to some extent. But yes, we'll, we'll see that the cost comes down on the batteries and the, the, the drive motors and so on. And we'll see um, you know EVs uh, available in, in every class and for every person. And then as far as um, military use, um, we are in discussions, we are doing investigations with how might we retrofit current vehicles um w- w- with uh, uh, electric systems, right? How might we put batteries in them, electric drive motors? Is it pure electric? Is it hybrid electric? So that there's a lot of work going on in that space um, versus, you know, an all new platform to take to take what's already existing and uh, and, and put new technology into an old platform. So that, that's certainly happening as well.
0: Paul, uh, thanks so very much for spending uh, so much time with us. Great conversation. Uh, Hope you and yours have a great holiday and a happy new year and looking forward to welcoming you back on the program next year. Thanks so very much.
1: Thanks, Vago. It was great to be here. A A lot of fun to chat. Happy holidays.